It's the Rosillo Podcast, and thank you. Thank you. I can't believe how great these episode rankings are. Um, we're right there with the top ones. The overall rankings have been great, so please keep subscribing, rating, and reviewing, because that's how they measure this stuff, and to have this consistency a few weeks in. So I'm not trying to turn into an arrogant thing here, but sometimes you have to, and also admit that you really appreciate it. So whatever the hell I just said, feel appreciated. We have Booger McFarland, Monday Night Football. We had him on last year, uh, right before the Chiefs-Rams game, which is probably one of the great regular season games of all time. And we're going to talk with him uh, about all the stuff. We're not going to necessarily go around the league, but I just want to spend a bunch of time with him, a bunch of different things, get some stories from him and his recruitment out of LSU, getting drafted, playing with Warren Sapp. So that's going to be a lot of fun. I've known him for a while, and he's terrific. We are, as always, brought to you by Belvedere. Produced in one of the world's longest-running distilleries, Belvedere Vodka is the world's finest all-natural vodka, part of a 600-year Polish vodka-making tradition. Belvedere is made with 100% Polska rye, pure water, and no additives. I believe dudes are talking about sending us back out on the road, Kyle. Get What's out. your status with that? Are you never allowed to do it? Did you? Is, are you banned from road shows? What's going on? So you just got to advocate for me, man. One Shiny okay. Pod gets it done every once in a while. It's like 50-50. Okay, I will. Next road show, we'll try to get you out there, all right? Sweet. You would have been great in Atlantic City. I mean, you would have. I actually can't think of a city that you would fit in better. I'm going this summer. You're going to be great. Let me know. Let me know when you go, and I'll, I'll give you a couple couple tips. And remember, when you go to Atlantic City with Kyle, to always drink responsibly. So Booger coming up here in a bit, but today's open is about replay. Instant replay. And you know what? I fucking hate instant replay. I hate it. It takes too long. And there's so many nights or days where I'm at home watching a game specific to the NFL, sometimes in college football as well, where I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm glad they reviewed this and, you know, they'll clearly change this. Oh, they're not going to change it? So what's the actual rate of the replay being corrected correctly? And if I said it was less than 50%, that would be being too harsh and really trying to sell my overall take here. It's not less than 50%, but it's still too often where I go, oh, okay, this is pretty simple. It will be this. And you're like, Nope. I mean, we all can't be fooled like Mike Carey was in just a comical way that almost became just nationwide sympathy for how bad Mike Carey was as a review guy when he was working with CBS. But there'll be goal line plays where you're like, okay, the guy's thigh pads are at the goal line diving. So unless he's smuggling the football in his calves, I think that's going to be across the plane, but we don't have the perfect camera angle. So... It's not a touchdown. And that's the thing is the pro replay people, they have one mission statement they repeat over and over and over again. They say what? Hey, I just want to get it right. That's a great idea. I, too, would sign up for something where we just get it right all the time. The problem is they still get it wrong. And, yeah, it's taking too long. This isn't new. But when I watch especially some of these college games, and it is play calling, it is more passes, it is the clock changes that they've made years ago, but on top of that, the replay. And there was a stretch there when college first started doing replay. You're like, who's in charge of this? My mom? <laughs> like it was taking forever. And then when there's a four-hour college game after I've watched like 12 that day, that's just a little too long. So if you think about replay in general, basketball, it's awful there too. Baseball, I'll give it this. Baseball and home runs, that's a no-brainer. It seems like they have that one figured out. There are some baseball plays where, eh, 
I don't like the gray that we lived with, or excuse me, I should say it this way. I liked or appreciated the gray that we lived with. I don't like that the gray carries over in this replay thing where now if a guy slides in the bag and his foot slightly comes off it, it was kind of like, hey, if you're at the bag before the tag and you're kind of the momentum and you know maybe your, your foot comes off the bag a millimeter for a half a second. And now if you challenge that with a replay, the guy's out when that guy was always safe all the time. I was okay with that guy being safe. Now, replay in baseball is only because Baseball just was like, well, what's everybody else doing? I mean, Bud Selig was, I believe, the worst of the modern commissioners, and that's including Gary Bettman. I mean, Selig would be the guy who owned Blockbuster Video, and they'd go, man, I don't know, Netflix, DVDs in the mail, streaming, and Selig would sit there at the corporate meetings going, hey, it's not like people are going to stop watching movies, guys. So baseball, I'm okay with. Basketball, though, is out of control with it. It makes a game that at the end, like as much as I love basketball, and you guys know that, when someone who doesn't like basketball is like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Like the last two minutes takes 30 minutes. I have no counter to that because you're right. And because we review more and more stuff that doesn't make any sense, some of the elbow stuff that doesn't even happen, where both guys are like, no, we're totally fine. I actually, I got elbowed sort of, but not really, and I don't want you to review it. Remember that Portlandia episode? Yeah, deep cut, great show, brilliant, where – the two main characters are like Fred and Carrie say, hey, we can pickle that, where they just spend this whole bit talking about how they can pickle anything. Somebody drops an ice cream cone. They're like, we can pickle that. The NBA, instead of it's fantastic, could say, hey, we'll review that because they want to review everything. And the reviews in basketball are out of control because so many times it's like, yeah, we reviewed it. Why? Just to take longer and still get it wrong. So the guy had the ball in his hands. The defensive player came over with the tomahawk chop onto his forearms. The ball went out of bounds and it may have just slightly nicked his fingernail on his left hand last on this replay where we're trying to slow frame it like we're watching neutron stars collide, and you're like, yeah, actually it may have been off his fingernail when forever in the history of forever, whenever you played pickup basketball, when somebody smashed your arms and the ball went out of bounds, and then, and trust me, it's happened in pickup where then the guy fouls the shit out of you and looks at you and goes, off you? And you just go, take that. Don't even think about checking the ball after that, okay? It's not happening. And it happens in NBA games, and we're giving it to the other team after the guy fouled, knowing the guy fouled, and saying, well, we can't really review fouls because, you know, we just can't. And I'm okay with that because I don't want you to review fouls. I actually would be okay if you didn't review anything. I know that sounds ridiculous because we couldn't have that because we would have this thing I call moment hysteria. And that's what we had last year in that Rams-Saints games. That's why we have pass interference being reviewed. Moment hysteria, where all of a sudden everyone is watching at the same time, and in that case it's an NFL playoff game, so in our bubble of sports and social media we decide this is the thing that is the most important because it is happening right now, and it was an egregious call. It was a horrible non-call. I was on the couch watching that game, and I'm like, oh my God, that guy just killed that guy. Well, they're throwing a flag, right? Oh. Have they thrown? Did they throw the flag? I was so blown away that a flag hadn't been thrown. I was convinced I blacked out for a second and rewound the DVR and was like, did I miss it? And of course, it should have been a flag. Of course, it was an important play. And of course, the NFL, in the aftermath of that, 
had to react. And it all seemed like a good idea, right? All of this seems like a good idea in the meetings when that moment hysteria takes over and you just start to think everyone is crushing us right now for this thing. We have to figure out a way. My main concern when the NFL decided to implement a review system for pass interference was like, man, everything looks like pass interference in slow motion. Like, this is going to be ridiculous. But now we've had all these unintended consequences, right? Where we're watching pass interference like we did in the Eagles-Packers game last night, and we go, oh, we think that looks like pass interference. But the NFL, what they didn't tell us or they didn't explain to us, or maybe this just sort of organically happened, which I'm okay with, because anytime anybody explains anything, then we want seven more explanations for the explanation. So in a weird way, the Belichick theory can be smarter, even if it makes everybody hate you. But the NFL has basically told us through these first few weeks that, yes, even though we're going to review pass interference and now guys are challenging offensive pass interference in a way we've never seen before because we couldn't, or even blocking downfield past the line of scrimmage where you're like, oh, wait, we can do this. All these unintended consequences. But what's actually happening is this has to be egregious. So I don't know that we ever knew that, but we're learning it now because we're learning now. We're like, wait a minute. I thought we were going to start reviewing pass interference. I thought we saw this. I thought that was PI. That needs to be PI. I was afraid everything was going to be PI, and instead, nothing is. <laughs> I don't want to say nothing, but it feels like slow motion replays of these things that all look like pass interference, and clearly that looked like pass interference on that right sideline throw last night. It isn't, and you know what's weird? Is I'm actually okay with it because when change happens – a lot of times it feels like a bunch of smart people are on Twitter and something that doesn't need to be fixed and smart people get together at Sloan and they're like, hey, I just wrote a 70-page thing on why block shots aren't any good. Why? That seems weird. Wait a minute. This whole time block shots aren't good? Yeah, they're not good because you don't get the possession. Okay, but what about when somebody swats your shit to the baseline you never want to go into the post again? <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, you, you just don't get possession. Okay, yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, you just you just don't get possession though. Okay, hmm, that seems weird, but it seems kind of smart, right? Because you wrote all these things down. So we're all in this contest, and I am included in this, and trying to figure out new ways to be smart all the time. Like Maybe if I tweet out this and suggest this kind of change, then maybe everybody would pick up on it, and then they're going to be talking about it on GetUp the next day. Okay, So it's happening now in the G League, where they're going to decide to implement this new rule change that if you're fouled on a two-pointer or a three-pointer, you're just going to take one free throw. And if it's an N one, it's the one free throw. So the one free throw will count for the total points of where you were on the floor or whether or not it's an and one during the foul violation. And there's a lot of smart people that I like that were like, this is awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, is it? Did we need this? Did we need this? Now, if the NBA is going, hey, we need to speed up the games, why don't you just get rid of replay in the first place and these stupid reviews that take forever? And it's not even just the reviews. It's just what the hell are you guys talking about when you're over there looking at this stuff at the scores table? So if the game got longer because of a review system that really isn't as efficient as it needs to be, so now we're going to change the free throw thing to make up for that? Now, no, maybe, now maybe, and I've, I've tried to do this more and more, as I say all the time, have more of an open mind about stuff instead of just saying everything new sucks because I'm definitely a guy that's done that in the past. But could there be an unintended consequence to this? Will we see games, and now granted, you're not going to be watching a ton of G League games, but say the NBA did this, would you have a guy at the line down one where he normally would have always had two free throws, have just this one free throw on a two-point foul shot where it feels like, wait a minute, now I can either lose or win, but I can't even tie. Is that wrong? Would somebody write a 2,000-word piece on that and why we don't know how to talk about free throws anymore this month in the Atlantic? 
So I don't know if that's a great thing. I don't know if it's needed. Now, if it eliminates dapping in between free throws made or miss, which is the dumbest evolution in all of basketball in the last few years, whoever came up with that thing should be just one-way ticket to Shithead Island because I hate the dapping up, and now everybody feels like they have to do it the whole time. Um, I remember there was a study, I think, in the New York Times where successful teams were teams that touch each other more, so I think that may have something to do with it. My counter to that piece in the New York Times would be, and I, actually I think it was the Wall Street Journal, would be teams that are good high-five more because they're good because they do better stuff. So as I run through all of this, okay, I don't know that I'm happy that replay still be messed up in the NFL. I think I'm more happy that the people that complained about pass interference so much, and granted, it was a massive missed pass interference call in that Rams-Saints game. I think I'm just happier that the people that were really mad are mad in a different way. And I know that sounds fucked up. Get to Booger McFarlane here in a second. When's the last time you thought about your tires? Tires are what makes the difference in how your car feels and drives. Since 1960, Discount Tire has been keeping customers safe by taking care of all your tire and wheel needs. With over 1,000 locations across 34 states, their main focus is your safety and the safety of everyone else on the road. Discount Tire provides tire rotations, balancing, free flat repairs, free air checks, and more. And because safety is so important, they provide free tire safety inspections. Discount Tire all also has the lowest prices on the best and largest selection of tires and wheels. They'll even make personalized recommendations for you based on your zip code and driving preferences. Whether you need an air check or a set of tires and wheels, Discount Tire can help you get back on the road with peace of mind and change to spare. Visit DiscountTire.com to shop, research, and purchase your tires today. You can even make an appointment to skip the lines. That's DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire. They'll get you taken care of. No, Booger, I, I felt... I felt back as here we go, <laughs> Monday night game, and because you didn't crush the Washington Redskins front office, then Redskins fans are mad at you, and then you know you you question Trubisky, then then Bears fans are mad at you. So that you got everybody mad at you on Monday night. So it must have felt good to kind of you know week two feel like you're right at home with the entire country watching you, being upset with you as a national broadcaster. So now you know you're it's official because everyone was upset. <laughs> Well, you know what, man? I I don't even worry about people being upset. What I try I to do, Ron, is, is, is be honest. And, you know, when you look at the Redskins, you know, you can complain about the ownership. But here's the thing. The owner's not going anywhere. Like, he owns the team. So you can talk about Daniel Snyder all you want to. All he's going to do is just is turn a deaf ear. Uh, I think that Jay Gruden, as I said on the broadcast, is on borrowed time. I think that his record speaks for that. Uh, you know, people are a little... You know, people were kind of bothered that I didn't mention Bruce Allen, and I can understand that. Uh, but, you know, generally speaking, you know, Bruce, you know, Bruce is going to follow Daniel Snyder's lead. You know, Doug Williams is doing some, some of the things behind the scenes, and, you know, they're trying to put that team together. All in all, it's going to be a new regime up there pretty quick, and I think Jay Gruden is going to be the first domino that's going to fall. As far as the Bears, man, I mean, the Bears are a championship team if Trubisky just remembers what color – you know, that they're wearing and, and, and throws it to his color and doesn't turn the football over and can put together a drive or two during the game. And, you know, I just try to be honest about the teams, man. You know, some people like it, some don't. I mean, I'm not going to say everybody's great when everyone across America knows that everyone's not great. Um, and the thing I try to do and the thing I've said is I'd rather be respected for my work than like. And at the end of the day, I, I think people have to respect 
my knowledge and acumen of football. But I love hearing that because, you know, whenever I watch the national broadcasts, I've always felt like in, there's there's a real human element to this because I understand it because I was around so many guys, not necessarily in those production meetings that you do as, as the main broadcasters because no one really, you know, I wouldn't really need to ever have that kind of access, but different access where I can tell when Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth love this coaching staff or this quarterback who they've interviewed for 10, 15 years. Like Peyton was a protected quarterback the last year he was in the league and he was awful. And I know they still won a Super Bowl, but I'd watch all those games. He was terrible. And yet all those guys kind of felt bad for him because they were in the booth. So I feel like your your criticism is always it's never nasty. You have a great way about you. You know, I'm biased because I've known you for a long time, but the national broadcast needs more people like you to tell you what you know you think instead of, well, I've been in a production meeting with this guy for 10 years of his career and I really like him, so I'm gonna kind of lie through what we're actually seeing. There's just too much of that, especially in the NFL. Yeah, I'm not trying to do that. I, I, I'm going to go in and I'm going to gather my own opinion. Uh, I, I, I do my homework. I do my research. I watch the tape. Uh, and, and I come up with what I think is the storyline for the game, what I think is the storyline for the players that are going to be the, you know, the eye-catching players, the players that we all want to show up and watch. You know, like this week, we got Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, and everyone wants to know, well, who is Mason Rudolph and what does Mason Rudolph bring? And, you know, what are they losing because they don't have Big Ben? Cincinnati, you know, what's the deal with the Bengals? And it's going to be fun sharing that because I enjoy that part of it because my studies then come to life. I get to take everything that I do behind the scenes and bring it to national television, and I get to do it with my personality. Um, I have players in this league that I like. I mean, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the game of football, but I'm not going to compromise um, my job and my integrity of, of telling it how it is for someone that I'm a fan of. And, and I think that, you know, everybody can't do that. And, and I'm not saying that, that there's a right and a wrong way to do it. I, I just think you have to do what's comfortable to you. And, and for me, it's, it's very comfortable. Uh, I think growing up, and, and you'll get this, growing up in radio, in, in, in the entire radio world, where you're paid to give opinions. That's basically all radio is. So I went from radio, three to seven afternoon drive in Tampa, to now national analyst. And my background has always been giving opinions. And so that's just kind of natural, like, breathing to me. And so to analyze football and package that with my personality, and then you add on my background of having to do radio and talk about the, the lightning and the bucks and the rays, I think that's what I bring that's different and unique to this job. So when you're studying these quarterbacks, and you know, McShay and I did this long thing on Wednesday where at the beginning I basically have admitted right now I've never been less confident about what a quarterback is or isn't going to be, and whether that's watching them on Saturdays or watching them at the start of their careers on Sundays. I think I know exactly who Trubisky is, and for anyone to say it's going to be anything different, you're lying to yourself. I watched Mason Rudolph in college. I – Watch the San Francisco game. It's way. It's one game. It's totally unfair. But if you ask me, I go no. How how quick do you think you know, and how often are you surprised? Um, I mean, usually I, I go in, you know, with a gut feeling, and and then you turn the tape on, and and the tape will tell you everything you need to know. Uh, sometimes guys can surprise you, especially early in the season. because guys improve. You know, this is not like we're dealing with week twelve or thirteen, where pretty much solidify who you are. 
you know, we're only dealing with week three, week four, so guys can show improvements early in the season. So uh, I tend to have an open mind this early. As we continue throughout the season and we get in the past Halloween, usually at that point, guys are who you thought they were based on what you've seen in the, in the first seven or eight weeks of the season. So um, it varies, but right now I, I'm giving guys an opportunity, like Mason Rudolph. I, I think, you know, if you understand and you watch Mason Rudolph when he was at Oklahoma State, I mean, the guy can spin it. He threw it all across the lot there, and Mike Gundy and Bullet. I mean, they just kind of slung it everywhere. So he's throwing a ton of passes, and his ability to see a f- see the field and read a defense is there. Uh, he, he's he, he's a cerebral guy. He's a smart guy. Um, he understands playing a position. My biggest thing watching him is how comfortable is he? He made his first start against San Francisco. This will be his second start. It's going to be at home. So how comfortable can he play? Because, and you can tell when a guy's comfortable. Because if he's doing what you know he can do and what you've seen him do in the past, then he's comfortable. If the game is speeding up for him, if he's doing things that are abnormal, then you know he's not comfortable. So for a guy like Mason Rudolph, I just want to see if he's comfortable and see how he can play the game. And then you see, okay, uh, Randy Fickner, the offensive coordinator, what situation or how is he going to best tailor the game plan for Mason? So those are all the little nuances that go into watching a young quarterback. Now, if this were Ben Roethlisberger, I think we all know by now what Ben is. Ben is a Super Bowl-winning quarterback that he's made his claim to fame from staying in the pocket, shrugging guys off, extending plays, throwing the football down the field. Like, he is a guy who uh, he ad-lived, and his improvisational plays are as good as anybody maybe in the history of the game. And so – you don't really have to watch a lot of tape because you've got years of footage on Ben and you know what Ben is. But for a guy like Mason, it's fun seeing where he was at Oklahoma State and now where he is going into his second start against the Cincinnati Bengals on Monday night. I thought Rodgers was awesome last night despite the loss against Philly um, and what Philly was able to do to come back. That deficit, I know Matt LaFleur is the enemy number one now because of not running the football and goal line and all these different things. But, you know, when you look at different numbers with Rodgers last year, you go, okay, there's some numbers here that are a little weird. And then they they don't win any games, and then it turns into a summer of of articles about Rodgers is actually this bad leader, all these different things. And then I look at him last night and I'm like, all right, this guy still might be the best. I would still right now say Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL. But if somebody wanted to argue Rodgers, that's fine. But I felt like, you know, too many times we don't admit that both things can be true and that Rodgers, by his standards, probably had a down year in some areas, and yet he still could be the most talented thrower I've ever seen in the football. So when you think about guys that you've played with, and let's keep this specific to Rodgers. We know the talent. We know those things. But can can a leader still be abrasive? Can a leader just be respected on talent, not necessarily personality, if that's true about who Rodgers is? It depends on who's going to follow you. See, I judge leadership not necessarily on talent. I judge leadership by who's following So your talent really doesn't matter to me. I learned in life a long time ago, Ryan, that the best leaders are the people that get the majority to follow behind them. That's how you judge leadership. I mean, otherwise, you're just a talented guy with nobody behind you, and then you're not a leader. I mean, you're just walking alone. And so I, I think Aaron Rodgers, his talent gives him a little bit more leeway to do that. But all in all, he's still got to get guys to respect him and follow him and appreciate the work that he does. And he may be the most talented quarterback we've ever seen. And, yeah, he's rubbed a few people the wrong way. If you, if you read articles about 
you know, his time with Favre and McCarthy, et cetera. But I think the way he plays the game and the level that he plays the game at, I think people respect it. Um, by now, at this point in his career, if he didn't put the work and the effort and the time in, I think people would call him out on it. And I, I haven't heard that. You know, what you hear is a guy who is maybe hard to coach because he wants the best. He wants excellence. He wants a coach to challenge him. He wants to be challenged. And I have nothing wrong with that because, hey, if I'm going to be the best, I need somebody that's going to coach me hard. And, A, they have to know what they're doing, okay? And then they have to be able to convey that to me where I can get better. And so I, I think Aaron does that. He challenges that. Also, you can tell on that team the way his offensive line protects for him, that they respect it. You can tell the way that they follow him that he's a leader. And he may lead in a different way or a different manner than some of us are used to. But again, I judge leadership not by talent. I judge leadership by who's following behind the guy that's leading. And that tells me everything I need to know. I remember one time we had Lomas Brown in studio, and he admitted that they got so sick of Scott Mitchell that they let him take a couple hits. <laughs> and it actually turned into like kind of a big thing, at least in Detroit. Um, and I think that's really – did you – ever remember a time playing on the D-line where the offensive line guys would be looking at you, rolling their eyes? Did you ever pick up on that, where you saw in a game you were playing in the way an O-line was playing? No, nah, because usually, and, and, you know, Lomas was an established veteran, and and I get that, but usually the, uh, the guys you go against, like, their job's on the line. And so they don't want right. to put some bad tape out there where you're just smashing a quarterback where they give you the, the old lay block, and, and, you know, next thing you know, the guy's hurt. Uh, there have been some scrubs that kind of, um, let's just say they didn't put up too much of a fight and gave you an opportunity to go hit their quarterback. But all in all, most of the guys are going to, uh, uh, when you step on the field, you got to be a pro. You know, it's not like high school where, where the guy took your girlfriend and you can just kind of throw the old lay block and let him get hit. Like, this is professional football, and whatever you put on tape is going to live for a long, long time. And so, um, although that would have been nice, though, especially with a couple of quarterbacks I – um, I played against it. I didn't really like. I, I would have loved to hit him. Uh, but now, that had never happened to me. And when it comes to the NFL, the quarterbacks aren't dating the same women as the old linemen anyway. So once once you're at that pro <laughs> level, that's a little different than high school. Um, who was the best leader that you played with then? Who was your favorite teammate as a leader? Derek Brooks. And, and it wasn't even close. Yeah, um, that's actually he led answer. by example. Uh, he He... You know, you always hit all the cliche. If he's the first one in, last one out, um, that doesn't really make me think a guy's a leader. What made me follow Brooks is I watched his actions day in and day out. And most of the great leaders, Ryan, that I've been around, they never announce that I'm the leader. They never say, hey, I'm the leader of this team. Most of the great leaders, people just gravitate toward them because of what they do and how they act and, and, the life that they lead. And Derek Brooks was that guy. He never once says, I'm the leader of this team. We voted him captain because of how he played, how he led, what he did, not only in good times, but in bad times. You know, he's one of my best friends to this day, and he's still what I would consider a leader now, maybe not on the team, but in the community, just because, you know, certain people have that, that pull where everyone wants to be around him and everyone wants to just kind of just, just, just get a little bit of whatever he's drinking in his cup. And, um, you know, Brooks has been that for me. Uh, he's been that in the city of Tampa. 
Uh, he was that for our team. Uh, just a, a great, great leader. Oh, and by the way, he was a great player also. Yeah, I was inspired walking past him in the hallway at ESPN. He's uh, he's the real deal. You, know, you just have to talk to him for two minutes, and you're like, all right, I, I totally get it. Now, when you came in in your first rounder, um, kind of based on some of the quarterback stuff, right, that that eye test of, okay, because I've, I've talked with you guys enough over the years where I love hearing the stories about this quarterback came in or this corner came in, and like the first day we're going, this is a huge mistake because, I mean, there's just something to be said about being in those pads and running around with guys that have been doing this a long time. We're – some of those Tampa guys, because that was a really talented crew and, and some vocal dudes or some some outlandish guys on that team, were they skeptical of you, even though you were first-rounder playing at LSU? Yeah, because, you know, kind of how it was built up. You know, people said he's the second coming to Warren Stapp. Well, guess what? Warren Stapp was there, so the moment I step on the field, they want to see my size. Does my size compare to Warren Stapp? What does my calves look like compared to his? What, what was my takeoff the ball? Like, my get-off? Like, Every little thing I did was compared to Sal. And, oh, by the way, we were in the same room together from a defensive line standpoint. So usually it takes probably uh, about a couple of weeks or, or there has to be a play or something that happens where they say, okay, now I see it. Whether it's a, whether it's a, whether it's a freak athletic play that you make at practice, whether it's a, uh, a drill you do, something where you show your teammates Man, that guy's got it. And then you got to be able to do it consistently over time. And I think, you know, coming in, um, you know, Sapp didn't make it easy for me just because his standard was high. I mean, you're talking about a future Hall of Famer. Um, and I didn't start my rookie year. I, I was kind of a spot player playing behind Brad Culpepper. And I, I'll never forget um, my second training camp in, in, in Tampa. And, you know, I'm, I'm still running second team behind Brad Culpepper. And one night, this was probably – with about a week left in training camp, my phone rang at home and it was Sal. And um, he said, they cut him. I was like, who? He said, they cut Brad Culpepper. I was like, okay. He's like, it's your show now. It's me and you. It's time for us to be the best tandem of DTs in the National Football League. And man, I hung that phone up and it was like, I'm, I'm not going to say that the light went on, but what happened with him reaching out to me saying, hey, not only are you playing with me, let's you and I go be something in this league together. And, and there was a period of about three, four years there where I, I thought we were the best tandem inside in the league. And just for him, somebody who you were uh, compared to, somebody who you looked up to, for him to reach out and to feel that way, uh, it, it was a great feeling, man. And only then do you get the respect from everyone uh, in, in your organization. So Sap ended up, and I know you've been asked about it a million times, and, and I've gone through it, and you've um, you've defended him as a teammate. You know, when when some stuff came out saying that Sap was because I never look. I'm you know I don't. I've had a couple of interactions. I would never use those as any sort of test of what it's like to be his teammate. But I mean, how how was it being on the field with somebody like that who really? I mean, people could talk about not caring and wanting to get into a fight. I mean, that part of it was real for him. Like, what's the best SAP story that you can actually share that's that's from the field playing alongside that guy? Well, we were playing the Denver Broncos, and, and to me, this epitomized one step who he was. Um, he's talking a lot of noise. He's talking to the Broncos' offensive line coach. I think it was Alex Gibbs at the time. And they wasn't going so well. And middle of the second quarter, SAP uh, makes a tackle. And he grabs his hand, 
he's broken his hand. The hand, the hand is broken. Like he, he tells me, he looks at me, said the hand is broken. And he goes in at halftime, and he comes out, and he's got a cast on. Broken hand, it's 99 degrees, he's got a cast, he's basically playing with one hand. And the second half, he goes out, and he dominates. And not only did he dominate, he talked more noise and more junk the second half than he did the first half with a broken hand. He was one of the ultimate competitors that I've ever been around. And he was a fast talker. It was nonstop. It didn't matter. The game, it didn't matter who. Um, you know, people give him a lot of grief for a lot of things that he's done uh, on and off the field. But here's what I know. When he stepped between those white lines, man, at defensive tackle, he revolutionized the position that, you know, you could say John Randall, Joe Green, those are the only couple of players that have ever really done it how he's done it at the level. Now, I know Aaron Donald is doing it now, but for my money, until I see Aaron Donald do it, you know, con- continue and finish off his career, because right now he's headed toward being a Hall of Famer, uh, Warren Sapp was something, man, that was uh, just from a competitive level that was that was fun to watch. Hey, more with Booger in a second here. Let's talk about the holidays. Wait a minute, what? As I read this, I'm like, this seems crazy early, and that's the next line of the read. It's like, hey, it may seem crazy early, but that time of year is creeping up, and you don't want to go through another holiday season taking closed-mouth photos while everyone else is grinning ear to ear. Man, they are hitting you right in the head with this one. Fortunately, you can get a photo-ready smile now with clear aligners from Candid. Candid's aligners work faster than traditional wire braces. Treatment takes just six months on average. That's amazing, actually. First, an experienced orthodontist who's licensed in your state creates a custom treatment plan. Then they show you a 3D preview so you can see how your teeth will look when you're finished. And Candid ships your aligners directly to you so there's no hassle. These aligners are comfortable, removable, completely invisible, and they cost 65% less than braces. Plus, with each aligner purchased, Candid donates $25 to Smile Train, which brings safe, 100% free cleft lip and palate treatment to children worldwide. That's incredible. That's good stuff right there. Smile Train. You can have a photo-ready smile by the holidays. Go to Canada.com slash Russillo, R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O. Use code Russillo, two S's, two L's, to get $75 off. That's Candid Co. So CandidCO.com slash Russillo. Code Russillo for $75 off. CandidCO.com slash Russillo. Code Russillo. Get your teeth fixed. And then you got traded to Indy, and I had forgotten that it was – you know, kind of that last run, and then it was over. How did that all go down? You know what, man? You know what was crazy? I'll tell you this story. I don't think this story has ever been told. Um, I was uh, – it was a Tuesday. Uh, I think we were like 0-4 at the time. And I'm like, we're, we're getting smashed in Tampa, man. Like, we're not winning. It's a long season. And so any time I need to clear my head or think or just kind of get away from it, you know, you go to the gym and put on 450 or 475 and do some bench press. I grab my golf clubs. I go out to the golf course and I hit golf ball. So I'm actually playing golf Tuesday morning. Uh, it's our off day. And uh, a family friend sent me a text message just out of the blue. and was like, hey, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. It's like, I just had something that kind of in my spirit that, you know, you weren't doing so well. I wanted to check on you. I was like, no, nah, I'm good. Everything's fine. You know, we're, we're terrible right now as a team, but overall I'm good. And that was at like 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. Now, fast forward to about 4.45 in the afternoon. I get a call, and I, I had a BlackBerry at the time. I'll show you how long ago this was. 
I look at my BlackBerry and it says Bruce Allen. I'm like, okay, this can't be good. I answered the phone and the conversation went like this. Anthony, which is a problem because nobody calls me Anthony. You know that. I said, yeah, Bruce, what's up? He says, uh, well, Indianapolis called and they wanted you. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, I want a lot of things, but just because I want them doesn't mean I can get them. And he's like, they made us an offer we can't refuse. And uh, so, so we're going to send you to Indianapolis. Uh, it'll be good for you. You know, they're winning. You can go up there and you can help them. And he's trying to package this whole thing uh, for me to feel good about it. And I said, okay, okay, and just hung the phone up. And when I hung that phone up, man, my life changed, dude, because I didn't want to go to the Midwest. I hated cold weather. And I just got traded from the only place that I knew. And I got on the plane the next morning at 10 a.m., Air France, and flew straight to Indianapolis. And I landed. As I'm landing, I had no idea what I was getting into. And there were three people around me that were like, uh, it's your first time in Indianapolis. I was like, yeah, like you, you'll love it. You're great people, the whole nine. People were very hospitable. And Ryan, I'm not going to bore you with like all the just the small details, but that year, or the, those two years in Indy turned out to be the best two years, uh, some of the best two years of my life. The people couldn't have been better. The organization was first class. Uh, Tony Dungy was the same way that I remember when he drafted me. We won a Super Bowl. And it was like everything that I was concerned or nervous about got to be a great thing. And we win the Super Bowl. We have the parade. I land in Tampa. And as soon as I land, a couple of my homeboys, hey, man, you back in town? Yeah, let's go grab some eating. Let's just kind of hang out a little bit. And so we go to this restaurant. Literally, I go from the plane to my car to this restaurant to meet my buddy. And I open the door. And the first two people I see were Bruce Allen and John Gruden, and they were hammered. Okay? And everything in my body, like like all the pettiness, all the, you know, mean-spirited things that, like, that we all think about, wanted to come out and say, hey, screw you, Bruce. Screw, screw you, John. You traded me, and now look what I got. But all I said was, you know what? Hey, Bruce, how you doing? John, hope you're well. And I walked in and walked past and I sat down at a table with my buddies. And that was the most satisfying, hello, how you doing, that I've ever had in my life. So that's how I got traded, man. And, and, and to this day, uh, I don't know if, 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 if John or Bruce have ever, I don't know if they remember that moment because they were kind of hammered. Um, but I don't know if I've ever let them live it down just because um, I think I got traded because I played defense. I made a lot of money and I wasn't an offensive guy. And there was a time where I think John wanted to win with offense, you know, regardless of, of, of how much or how many plays you made, he wanted a team that could win with offense. You got to remember our team was led by a dominant defense. And so slowly but surely think about it. Warren Stapp got cut. John Lynch got cut. They cut Derrick Brooks. Simeon Rice got cut. So all the stalwarts of the great Buccaneer defense slowly got cut. And you started to see guys like Charlie Garner brought in, Todd Stucey, Derrick Deese, like all the old offensive guys. So it was fun, man. But uh, I, I hated the day I got traded, but it turned out to be one of the best things in my life. You hate Gruden, though. I mean, is it fair to say that you just don't like John Gruden? Uh, I'm not going to say I don't. I, I, I hate him because I think hate's a strong word. But let's just say I, there are more people 
uh, in my life that I like um, than John Gruden. <laughs> so you have him. He's not in your top. Can I, can I do a little thing here where I, I think this is – I'm not disagreeing with you here, but I always find it interesting in that you know part of the reason all you guys are successful – is because you're wired a certain way and you decide very early on, like, this is what it's about. And yet I'm going to stay with this focus when the rest of the world gets weeded out. And, and sometimes it's just the, the physical part of it. But you're mad that you get traded from a Tampa team that isn't any good and they're transitioning and you don't even like that coach. And they got a second rounder for a 29 year old D tackle and you didn't really play that much more. Well, there's never a point where you went, hey, you know what? Like, this actually makes a ton of sense, and maybe I'll get to go be competitive with a really good team with Peyton Manning. Because that's what an outsider would think, and I think whenever the thing is happening to you, as this was, you, and I'm not saying this specific to you, but I think we all inherently think about the disrespect before we think about the opportunity. Because we're all a selfish. Like, everyone's innate True. ability to take the selfishness away from their situation doesn't exist. And so we all are going to look at it from a selfish standpoint. So, yeah, I look at it the same way. Like, I've been in Tampa. I was building my house. Like, you know, it's 70 degrees every day. I'm thinking about all the things that affect me. And those are taken away, like, really quickly. Like, all my friends. I've never been to Indianapolis. I've never been to the Midwest. And so I'm going to a place that I know no one. I've never been all because the organization said, okay, a 29-year-old defensive tackle that was making $4.5 million at the time doesn't fit what we want to do, so we're going to move on and go another direction. Yeah, it probably made a lot of sense. I couldn't see that. I wasn't worried about them. It was all about me. You're right, though. We never think about that. We don't think about what's going on with family. We don't think of just the reality of you love where you're living. Oh, by the way, you don't get to live here anymore. And that's the job. So even though I can have sympathy and acknowledge it, you know, there's always a, a cold part of me that will say, do you want to do something else <laughs> where, where you can stay wherever you want? Because those jobs aren't as, aren't as cool as the ones that you guys have um, whenever, whenever I've talked to guys about it. Give me your best, because you know my, I'm wearing my LSU hat here in Manhattan Beach, and I've already got one game under the belt this year, the Austin game, which I wasn't going to miss for anything. I have a couple of others scheduled. Give me your best LSU recruiting story, although you know you never know with you Louisiana guys. I'll look at a roster and it's like 107 dudes and like three are from out of state. So um, give me give me everything that went into going there and, and playing at Tiger Stadium. You know, um, I uh, my best friend at the time in high school went to the University of Arkansas. And so there was a lot of pool uh, from the University of Arkansas and Danny Ford and that whole crew for me to come to Arkansas and play with him. And I considered it really, really, really strongly, man. Uh, in the end, I took about five trips. I went to Notre Dame, um, touched down Jesus the whole nine. A little too chilly for me up there, so that wasn't going to work. Uh, I, I, I went to Tennessee. And while I'm on my unofficial visit at Tennessee, this is, I think Tennessee had played Alabama that night. And this is after the game. Phil Former is the head coach. So Phil comes in the, uh, Phil comes in the recruiting room. He's like, Anthony? He's like, yeah. I, said, I want you to walk out here on the field for me, uh, with me. I'm like, cool. So I walk out and we're walking through the goalposts. And, you know, Phil is like, hey, 
can you can you can you picture and, and, and envision yourself playing in front of a hundred thousand people in the checkerboard end zone? I'm like, yeah. He's like, now. He, he walks up beside me, puts his arm around me, and he says, "I want you to close your eyes." I'm like, okay, this is, this is getting a little weird already, you know. <laughs> he says, uh, "I want you to imagine those same 111,000 or whatever." Now I want you to bend over. Imagine yourself bending over. Your hand is on the ground. And slowly, Peyton Manning slides his hands underneath your rear end. He said, and now Peyton Manning is taking snaps from you. It's like, can you envision that? I was like, no, nah, Phil, Phil, I can't envision that. So that ended my Tennessee recruitment because he wanted me to play center and not defensive tackle. So Danny Ford makes the official visit to the house in Louisiana. And, you know, Again, it's widely uh, thought of that because my best friend is there, I'm going to go to Arkansas, or at least I'm going to consider them very strongly. So Danny Ford, this is 1994. No, this is early 95. Danny Ford walks in my mother's house, and of course, we're Southern Louisiana people, country folk. So my mama has, has cooked a spread. We got food everywhere. I mean, it's fried chicken falling off the stove is so much. And she's like, well, Danny was like, well, let's go in, go in the living room and kind of sit down and talk a little bit before dinner. So we all do that. Danny walks in. I sit down. And as Danny's getting ready to sit down, Danny sat there. He sat back in the chair. And the first move he made, he put his cowboy boots on my mama's coffee table. And at that point, I knew I wasn't going to Arkansas. So regardless of what my best friend did and regardless of what Danny Ford was about to say, the fact that he didn't respect my mother's house enough not to put his boots on her coffee table, she was not going to sign off on me going to Arkansas. So LSU um, made sense for me in a lot of ways. It was very practical. Um, my family could come see me play. Uh, it was two hours from the house. And on my recruiting trip was the first time that I'd ever gone to like a real party. You know, I grew up in a small town, probably 3,200 people, man. Like, we didn't have parties. Like, hanging out to us was going to the local Walmart on a Friday night and everybody hanging out in the parking lot. So when I got to LSU and I went to a party where it's, I mean, it is 2 o'clock in the morning and, um, like, like we're all just, just partying. Not over out. It was an un Oh, no, the night was just getting started. So it was an unreal feeling to go to that party. And then on top of that, um, Jerry Donato, I gave him the benefit of the doubt, which I probably shouldn't have. Um, and so that's how I kind of wound up at LSU, man. I had no idea. Until I first started really getting close to it, I, I didn't realize that Jerry and Donato were four-letter words in Baton Rouge. Um, man, it's just, I mean, I, I'm walking around tailgates. I, I, hell, I'll, I'll hear one I'll hear one this year. And, you know, and I, I met Jerry a couple times, so I don't, I don't have anything bad to say. But, you know, it's just it's one of those things where when you bring an outsider into Baton Rouge and it doesn't go well, forget it. So I know that, you know, we, we've known each other for a little while and, you know, different guys, you know, ask me about different guys all the time and the athletes, and everything. And, then, and the one thing that I've always really appreciated about you and what stood out was that, you know, from day one, you'd be like, Hey, I'm Booger. And it's funny that you said the Anthony thing, because as I was researching some of the stuff last night, before we sat down to talk today, there's actually a Google search that comes up that says, is Anthony McFarlane related to Booger McFarlane? <laughs> Which I thought was actually pretty clever. Um, but people were asking the question. And there's so many athletes that we interact with when you're in Bristol every day 
And I can understand the first guys being a little guarded, a little maybe even a little standoffish. I mean, hell, I'm some I'm like that sometimes, and I don't even do anything cool. And you from day one, and I don't know if it's Louisiana thing, I don't know if it's your upbringing, the family, it's probably a combination of all these different things. You didn't care who the other person was, what their status was, what their job was. You would sit down and spend time with that person. There's something about you that's different with guys that have had a really great career where from day one you treat everyone as an equal. And I think people try to do that, and for you it's always incredibly sincere and natural. It's kind of how I was raised, man. You know, my mother raised three kids on $18,683 a year, Ryan. Um, She taught us values. You know, she taught us uh, right from wrong. And she also taught us um, just respecting people. And and you're no better than anyone else. I mean, I saw that. I lived that, you know. And my mother was born in 1955. She grew up in an era where, because of the color of her skin, she couldn't do certain things. And I saw her go from that to... As times change, she changed. You know, one of the one of the first jobs that I remember her getting, uh, you know, was in our neighborhood. There was an older older white lady who basically just needed a caretaker, and she hired my mother. My mother worked for her for over a decade, and so like when you just see the lessons, and not only the lessons that I saw based on how she lived, the lessons that she taught me, those things have stuck with me for a long time, and. Um, I'm, I'm no better than anybody else, man, regardless of what position I hold or what company I work for. It doesn't matter. Like, even now, people look at it now and say, man, you know, man, you're, you're money in football. And, and, and most of the people that work with us can't believe, like, who I hang with. Like, I, it's basically some of the camera guys, some of the, some of the nerdy stats guys. Like, I like talking to people and being around people that I think are fun and interesting, regardless of the position you hold. Because I think when you want to be around people because of, of the status or title, then you're always looking for something. I just enjoy people that are genuine. Um, maybe there's something interesting about them that I can relate to. Um, but that's just how I was raised, man. You know, and, and I think that that is a characteristic of a lot of Southern people, um, more so than you would if, you, if, if I were from New York or L.A. Because, you know, your tendency when you're from a big city and there's so many people and there's so much going on, you can't have or it's tougher to have some of those um, some of those roots, some of those uh, core values, because it, it, it's a hustle and bustle city. There's too much going on. Yeah, it's really impressive. It really is. Because in the beginning, we'd be like, where's Booger? We'd be like, oh, he's having lunch with a PA. And you'd be like, what? <laughs> What's he doing? Be like, is he all right? We'd be like, no, no, he's... He's cool. He likes the guy. He's like, they get along. I'm like, all right, that's that's cool. So let's, you know, we all know the story about the transition from from last year and then them putting you in the booth and the Winton's out and then you come in and Brian Curtis, who I'm lucky to call a guy I can work with here at the Ringer, who I think is as good as anyone in the country when it comes to covering media stories. Um, there's a part in that story in the Ringer that I thought was really important where you basically decided, all right, I'm sending an email to everybody that matters. You know, Jimmy Pitaro, Connor Shell, Steph Drooley, Lee Fitting, and you're like, all right, I'm I'm doing this, and I'm telling them I want it, and I'm going for it. What was it like for you prepping to write this email out to let them know that you wanted the number one role in the Monday Night Booth? You know, man, it, it was. I really didn't put much put much thought into like. 
you know, I, I learned a long time ago, if, if there's something in life that you want, then you got to not only work for it, but you got to let people know. There's too many times, you know, it's assumed that you want something. It's assumed that, okay, they're going to know you want it. So I just wanted to be vocal and let them know, A, I wanted the job, and B, I could do the job. And I think that's the thing that I wanted to leave. Like, regardless of whether they were going to offer Peyton Manning half for Disney, like, that didn't matter to me. I just wanted them to know that I did a role last year that I felt like um, I did not audition for, and the role that was present now, which was open, that's the one that I wanted and I could do. And so I just wanted to let them know that I could do the job, man, and I was looking forward to it. That way, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, they didn't hear from an agent. They didn't hear from a handler. They heard it directly from my voice. And I think that means something in life, man. I, I, I think that carries weight when you can make a connection with your boss and your superiors about what it is that you're trying to do. Like, it means something. I don't care what profession you're in. When you can make a personal connection with the people that are going to make the decisions, I think that will go a long way into you getting whatever job or, or situation that you're trying to get. And, and I think it was for me. And so that was just me, just kind of being me, man, just, just trying to make, be proactive instead of reacting. Yeah, because it worked, and you deserved it, and last year's setup sucked, and you handled it all year, but you're right, because I think sometimes decision makers, like, hell, I can send an email, sometimes it works, and I can also tell you sometimes it backfires, but as a guy that played in the league a bunch of years and had a really nice run, that can surprise people, so it's it's a lesson really for everybody but I think specific to you that, hey, this guy's actually stepping up himself to reach out to us in his own words to tell him how important this is because it is important. I mean, it's Monday Night Football. This is really important. The legacy, the the you know, the standard that, that you'll set, you know, the rarity of African-Americans being the number one analyst in this booth. And when I looked at the numbers on it, I'm like, man, these numbers are really bad. Like this is really this is way worse than I thought until I had the numbers right in front of me, how rare it actually happens. And, you know, it's something it's, you know, it's one thing to be proud of just being in a great role, but it's, it's a whole nother level of, of things that are important that are, I don't want to say on you. Cause I know you don't look at it as the pressure of that. Cause I know you don't, but this is just an awesome thing. And I'm, I'm really excited for you this year, man. Well, Ron, I really appreciate it, man. And, and you know, you and I have had a, a ton of different conversations about a, a ton of different things. And, and I know exactly when you say something that you mean it. Um, and, and I appreciated that. Uh, I don't look at it as more responsibility, but I do understand the the position that I'm in. I understand the weight that it carries. And I, I don't think that you can run or hide from the fact that there haven't been a lot of people that look like me in this position, whether that's my uh, my my color, whether that's where I grew up in, I grew up at, whether that is uh, the side of the ball that I played on. Like I can continue to give you so many different things that are atypical to the position that I'm in. And I understand that, and, and I respect the, the position for it. But what I try to do is, generally speaking, is, is just be myself. You know, uh, that email that I sent to the bosses and we talked, uh, they hired me because they have confidence in me being me. And so when I'm on the broadcast and when I'm talking football and I'm laughing and joking and, and, and I'm giving you analogies based on what I see, that is the the best version of Booger that you're going to get or that you can get because they didn't hire me to try to be like anybody else. They hired me because of what they've seen over the last four or five years in this company. When I came to Bristol for the first time and nobody even knew who I was, 
until now. I think they feel pretty good about that. And so that's all I'm trying to do, man, is just, just be the best version of myself. And it's going to be enjoyable. It's going to be fun. Um, I think, um, you know, so far this season, it's it's been really, really cool to see um, j- just how fans react and, and, and how the games um, – how the games kind of dictate whether or not uh, you know you get a chance to analyze some some, some really good football, or you got to kind of tell story time. And so it's been fun so far, man. Yeah, and those blowouts get those stories going. Uh, last one before I let you go, because next time we do this, I want to talk more ball. But I, I just wanted to share kind of your thing with everybody um, because I think it's cool. Uh, is LSU going to beat Bama this year? Uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's funny uh, you mentioned that, that like because I'm I'm, I'm I'm sitting here now uh, contemplating that because I'm, I'm looking at how we're playing and everything we're doing right now, and I feel really, really good. But, man, we got to be able to cover some people, man. I mean, that's, that's, what we, that's what we're struggling to do right now. Um, I just hope that we have an opportunity late in the fourth quarter. That's the one thing that I'm looking for. Give us an opportunity late in the fourth quarter, and then you allow the caliber of athletes that you have to be able to make plays. I, I think – the one thing that's really been disappointing is is that late in that game, when you want to see guys make plays in crunch time, we haven't been in that position in a, in a long time. Where, you know, your five-star athletes, where your coaching staff, where your, your, your conditioning in the summer can pay off late in that game. And I, I, I just want us to be in that position late in the game, and let's see where the chips fall. All right, sounds good. We'll talk to you soon. Later, Ryan. Appreciate it, man. Anytime. All right, that was good stuff from Booger. I've always been a fan, and and I mean it. You know, you, you may not like him on Monday night, but he's a good dude. Um, and that's just the deal. Like, how? What's the approval rating of analysts or play-by-play guys on national games? Is anybody over fifty percent? <laughs> I mean, seriously. If people can't stand Collinsworth, I think Al Michaels is just so good. I would. I think it'd be weird to be like, oh, I can't stand Al Michaels. Um, I like Collinsworth more now than when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I didn't like him. Now I think he's good. I thought Gruden was good, but he liked everybody. Um, Tariko's outstanding. I'm not going to go through this whole thing because then if I say somebody's terrible, then it's going to end up being um, something that, because I'm this massive influencer, you know, I don't feel like dealing with it. Okay, Monday, we'll be here with Chris Long wrapping up week three. We actually have a couple good things cooking. We don't know if we're going to be able to get Mike Jones. Uh, on the podcast, I DM'd him straight up. I just went for it. I'm like, hey, we want to have you on. And I've been listening to Mike Jones all week. That thing is solid. Like, that's not just some, you know, it's, I don't want to call it Kid A, but it's, there's very few skips on, on Mike Jones. And when you really listen to the lyrics, that is a guy just like, hey, everybody thought I sucked, and now what's up? I want you to take that thought. I want you to have that mindset all weekend long. Let us know how it goes. <laughs>